Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We originally thought about interviewing Portland-based chef Gregory Gorday as part of a show focused around athletes and what they eat. Gregory, whom you might know as a competitor and guest judge on Top Chef, is an ultramarathon runner and CrossFit enthusiast. But the more we learned about Chef Gregory and his life, the more we wanted to share his story with you. His whole story. The good, the bad, and the delicious. Gregory has cooked with some of the best chefs in the entire world, and he's celebrating his 12th year of sobriety. Later in the hour, we'll highlight some of the recipes from Gregory's debut cookbook, Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health. But first, let's get to know our guest for the hour. Gregory Gorday is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, a James Beard Award nominee, a Top Chef finalist, and guest judge. And he's the author of Everyone's Table, Global Recipes for Modern Health. His co-author is J.J. Good. It's so good to see you, Chef Gregory Gorday. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so I've been a fan since Top Chef. I was rooting for you then, just as a, a New Yorker to New Yorker. Thank you. But you are Haitian by way of Brooklyn and Queens. Mm-hmm. How did that pan out, those early years, back in the in the gritty streets of New York? Yeah, I mean, I grew up... Born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens. Uh, right after I was born, my parents moved to Queens, where we lived for many, many, many years, many decades. Catholic school, very Haitian household upbringing, very big Haitian community with a lot of families of immigrants and immigrant families. You know, it's, it's oftentimes one group of family members will move to, you know, a country and then followed by other relatives. So, you know, aunts would visit. Both my aunts kind of had work in the States. My aunt, Micheline, she has a clothing store in, in Haiti. So she would shop in the garment district all throughout the city. My cousins, all, a lot of them moved to New York to go to school. So it was always a very, very busy, bustling household. You know, my parents worked quite a bit. They worked two jobs to provide for us. So oftentimes, you know, my grandmother or aunts would come and stay with us and take care of us while my parents were at work all day. It was a, a very, very loving household uh, filled with lots of family, uh, lots of relatives coming back and forth from Haiti, and uh, lots of Haitian food, actually. But the thing is, like, I just didn't cook when I was younger. <laughs> I think I was playing and reading and, and just hanging out and going to church. But I was always, always very, very well-fed. I believe that as I, I started to read your uh, cookbook, which reads like a novel in many ways, You brought me back to my days after going to Mass. I'm Catholic also. I'm Mm -hmm. first generation. Mm -hmm. And Mass seemed like forever. And I just couldn't wait to get home because (laughs) I knew there would be platano maduro. (laughs) There would be huevitos. There would be, you know, there would be just this great platter of food as soon as I ran past those church doors. Was that similar to your experience? Oh, absolutely. So... Catholic school, you know, church every Sunday. My parents were really religious, but they were great. They never really, you know, forced religion upon us. It was it was a very welcoming and like understanding household for sure. And I'm really grateful for that. But oh yeah, Sundays after church, you know, my mom would wake up early. She'd start cooking. We'd go to church. We'd hit the patient bakery on the way home. 
have, you know, these buttery, flaky Haitian patties and they'd be filled with, you know, spicy beef or uh, salt cod or chicken. And maybe we had a couple of relatives over, but it was always a lavish feast. Haitian style chicken, rice and beans, plantains in multiple ways for sure. And always one of the best parts of the week for the family, 100%. Yeah, I think what's so cool about hearing these stories, you know, I have very specific, I remember being a kid standing on a stool making my first egg sandwich, you know, when I was... I got six years old, seven years old or something like that. But it's that smell of the stove turning on, of that butter starting to melt down that pan, making that bird noise that it starts to really kind of bring you back to stuff. And I feel like you're a pretty sense-driven guy yourself, aren't you? Yes, yes. You know, when I started learning how to cook, I worked in lots of different styles of restaurants. And I worked in French restaurants. And the latter part of my career took me to Spanish restaurants and, and Pan-Asian concepts. So I really had to go back and learn how to make Haitian food because I just didn't grow up cooking it. I grew up eating it quite a bit. So it was always a great victory when I could make something and it triggered a really intense memory. When I finally got the rice and beans down the right perfect way and, and it tasted just like I remembered my aunt's tasting or the chicken cooking and the Creole sauce and it smelled just like what I remember my grandmother's house smelling like. Those are like those aha this is great moments that I've had in my later career. Food memories can kind of trigger and be triggered by smells, by sights. And, you know, it takes you back to a place you haven't been in many, many years, but a place you remember really well. You know, it's funny. You look at, I mean, you and I both were graduates of CIA and, you know, it's such a classic French cooking that we're taught. Recently, we just started doing a lot of talking about here on this show and, and with other chefs. They don't really teach us a lot there about you know, like you mentioned Haitian cuisine or Norwegian cuisine or African cuisine. It's just, it's pretty straightforward. And I, I think that's kind of a downfall. We really need to try to learn more about those cuisines. I think they can get lost in the mix if we're not careful. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think there's a lot of conversations about that, how, you know, there isn't just one food and oftentimes even on Top Chef, you know, recently for, we had a Pan-African challenge and a lot of the conversation was about how, you know, oftentimes the story is about French food or Italian food uh, maybe even Japanese food. We think about those type of restaurants as fine dining, but we don't think about, you know, other cultures. And there's definitely a huge movement in our country, I think, as more people become entrepreneurs and business owners and more smaller uh, restaurants kind of gain, gain some fame and, and garner more guests and put themselves on, on the map. You know, we can talk about Haitian restaurants and West African cuisine and, and Guyanese cuisine and Jamaican cuisine and, and all these kind of unsung kind of heroes of, you know, culinary because just because certain cuisines are more popular, that doesn't mean that there aren't amazing cuisines out there that we need to know, you know, as, a, you know, a beautiful country made up of many, many immigrants, many, many different types of cultures. Gregory, I wonder if you could bring us back because before you got to CIA, you actually started at NYU. I did. I did. <laughs> and that, and that didn't, and that didn't quite, uh, that didn't quite pan out. Were you studying medicine? I was. Pretty mad. I know. At one point, I thought I was going to be a lawyer and didn't pan out. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, it's a very classic child of immigrant stories. You need to be a doctor or a lawyer. But my parents actually both worked in the medical field. My mother was a hospital microbiologist. and My father was a hospital chemist for all their careers throughout hospitals in Brooklyn and the Bronx. My parents also taught at city colleges. So, you know, I just always thought when I was younger, I wanted to be a pediatrician and I entered pre-med at NYU. And for some reason, I just did not click with the coursework. The chemistry and the biology like completely went over my head. And I actually went out to college and 
I thought I wanted to do wildlife biology. So I, you know, I've always been kind of very interested in natural resources and the environment and conservation. So I went out to Montana and I entered in, into the courses and I found myself studying barbed wire with a bunch of cowboys. And I was like, well, I, I, I don't think this is exactly for me either. <laughs> and it was actually there that I started cooking. You know, I was finally living on my own for the first time, paying my own rent, feeding myself, responsible for myself. And that is when I started cooking. And I started making really, really, you know, kind of effective and high carb meals with, you know, my little college paychecks. And, you know, I started reading cookbooks and having dinner parties and having friends over and I would stay in Montana for the holidays and we would have big lavish parties. And um, some of my friends were like, hey, you, you're actually good at this. And my one friend, Claire, I'll never forget, she was like, you should work in a restaurant. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. And I just started washing dishes at, at one of the cafes in town. Also started making sandwiches at this deli. Uh, so those were my first two jobs. Very, very humble beginning kind of already pinpointing my work ethic to start with two jobs right from the get. But <laughs> uh, I mean, I think the funny thing is overall is that biology and chemistry and the environment, you know, all those things that I kind of dipped out of are so, so much a part of actually cooking. You know, biology and chemistry are 100% a part of cooking. And your relationship to the environment is extremely important when we talk about farmers and our natural resources and how things are grown and sustainability in food. So all those things are still very much a part of what I do today. So that's, I think that's one of the best parts. Absolutely. You know, I, I love that you just said that because I think that it's such an important part that people don't realize as a chef, food is more science than art, in my opinion. I think if you understand a pH scale and you understand that one side's alkaline and one side's acidic, you got to hit it right in the middle. Great flavor is all about balance. And that's the key thing there. And I think that having someone like you come on and say that too, is just such an important thing for chefs and cooks and young culinarians who may check this program out to hear. Yeah. I mean, I think I've been extremely blessed to be a part of this industry and, you know, I know my career can just develop into so many things. And I, I think for young people to understand that there's so many avenues you can take to be a chef and it's so multifaceted and, you know, yes, I've been on TV. That's one piece of what I do. And, you know, I love working in restaurants, building teams, and that's another piece of what I do. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we are learning how to properly cook something. There's tons of science in there. And, I'm working with sustainable seafood, you know, we're talking about global impacts of what we do and how we source properly, you know, working with purveyors, especially in a time like a pandemic where the cycle has been broken. So when we talk about restaurants being closed for a year, what about all the food that's being grown? You know, what about all the seeds that were planted prior to the pandemic and what happens with all that food? So it's very, very um, complex and it's never ending how much you can learn and, you know, what other avenues we can go into with the culinary arts. Manasal, this is what I've been saying forever. A chef should be president. Do you hear this? They're born leaders. It. Like, don't you hear I love this right it. now? I'm here. I am. I am here That's for it. it, chefs. I'm here for it. Um, when you finished CIA, you trained under none other than Jean Georges von Gerichten. Yes. Uh, how did you land that? Because that is no easy feat. Sure. Not to so, say that you weren't talented, because I'm sure you were. Yeah. But I know that I do know enough about your industry to know that a lot of it is, besides the blood, sweat, and tears, finding the person that's like, "Hey, come." So what really happened? <laughs> what really happened was my mother's uh, one of my mother's best friends. Her son-in-law was the chef de cuisine at Jean George. So that was my in. So when it was time for my extern uh, from CIA, 
um, that was my in. And I was actually the first extern from the CIA to go to St. George. And this was in 1998, 98 to 99. And, and yeah, uh, it was a really, really tremendous experience. They do a fantastic job there of just putting you in the fire. You are given a lot of responsibility in any position that you're in. You know, back then, you, George was still somewhat of a new restaurant. I think he was a handful of years old. You know, you know he, he did have other restaurants in the city. He had received four stars from the New York Times when that, you know, was still a review. So, you know, he's on fire. And I had a fantastic time. I learned so much. I felt a lot of the things that I was taught in school, I was retaught at George George. I was retaught how to cut a shallot at George George, you know, on day one of, you know, starting there. It was really, really amazing. And I worked for him for about six and a half years. And I worked in multiple restaurants. You know, I worked in New Team, which is the restaurant adjacent to Jean Georges, Columbus Circle. I worked there from the cold side to the hot side. I became a sous chef. And yeah, and at one point I became a chef de cuisine for his uh, modern Chinese concept named Restaurant 66, which was in Tribeca. So a lot of things happened at that time. And I definitely credit him and his main recipe developer, his head of culinary, uh, Gregory Brainin, who's my mentor, for really teaching me so many things, you know, how to use acid, how to use chilies. You know, George always did really well with incorporating healthful elements. You know, he's really popular in like the late 80s for, you know, eschewing kind of heavy fats and rich sauces and working with herb oils and fruit juices and, you know, taking the butter out of the jus and just really making lighter food. And, and that's something that's really stuck with me. Um, and that's really obvious because of my cookbook. But also, you know, just knowing that, you know, there's a world of flavors out there. And that's something John George taught me as well. He spent an early part of his career in Asia. So we always played with ginger and chilies. And, you know, he was one of the key chefs forging the fusion movement, which is really popular in the, you know, kind of early aughts, late 90s. So uh, I learned quite a bit from that man. And just to clarify, so everyone knows what Chef's talking about, an externship at CIA happens about the halfway point of your degree program. You finish your wines class, and then you go on your externship, which is like an internship. You basically go work at a restaurant for almost free, and uh, you kind of do what you're told, and you, you don't ask a lot of questions, keep your mouth closed, and do what they tell you to do. It, it's a great experience to get that chance to go and do something like that with a big, giant, world-renowned restaurant like that, Chef. What a great experience that was. Yes, 100%. To be able to cook in New York City during that period, you know, was definitely a career-defining kind of life-defining uh, experience for sure. It's like the time frame of New York City food kind of right then and there really starting to explode and become this mainstream mecca more so than it ever was, I think, then. I mean, it was definitely an era. It was the early 2000s. You know, there's still big clubs in New York City. Sex in the City was on TV. You know, yeah. there's still like the mega restaurants like Budokan. So it was definitely a heyday and it was definitely very, very fun. When we come back from the break, Gregory shares more about his early days as a chef in New York City and the turning points that made him change his life for good. I really asked myself if I was done drinking and doing drugs for the rest of my life, and I looked in the mirror and I told myself yes. After that, I walked into my first meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've never looked back. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Chef Gregory Gourdet.
Welcome back to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're spending the hour today in conversation with James Beard Award nominee Gregory Gourdet. He was a competitor on Top Chef, and he's a guest judge on the show. He's just written his first cookbook, and it's a hefty one. It's called Everyone's Table. Before the break, Gregory was telling us what an incredible learning experience it was working in the kitchens of renowned chef Jean-Georges Van Gerichten. But those early years cooking in New York were also fraught. As my career accelerated, I, I, I developed a very, very nasty drug and alcohol habit. And working in New York City was extremely, was a big part of that. I started experimenting with drugs at a very early age. You know, I actually went to a boarding school, a small boarding school in Delaware. And my parents, always in pursuit of the best for us, they offered us some opportunities, private school in the city or boarding school out of town. And I started experimenting with drugs, you know, very, very early. A lot of, you know, teenage people, adolescents kind of go through those experiences, you know, you're young, you're, you're growing, your body's changing, you're just kind of curious for life and experiencing new things. That really led into a very hungry uh, part of me uh, kind of going through the same thing in college in Montana. Around that time, it really was uh, another heyday. It was like the rave era. There were raves all across the country and kind of designer drugs like ecstasy and ketamine. And I love music and I still love music and I love electronic music and all my friends are DJs. But Back then, you know, going to raves, it was really uh, a huge heyday with like kind of all these underground parties. And it was definitely such a fun time of life. But, <laughs> you know, uh, recreational drug use uh, became quite a problem. And I remember specifically the first time I was late for work from drinking too much the night before. I really timestamp my, my battle with addiction as, you know, starting on that day. Over the course of the next seven years, you know, it just really got darker and, and there were definitely some good times, and but it definitely got darker. By year five, I was addicted to uh, smoking cocaine and definitely addicted to drinking. Uh, I had been going through jobs at that point, working at multiple restaurants in New York City, you know, places like I don't even put on my resume. You know, it was it was a dark time. You know, I, I was with a, a good friend of mine and he was kind of going through the same thing. And we were just kind of supporting each other through this kind of dark phase of addiction and you just like making poor choices. But at the end of it, I checked into rehab in Union City, uh, excuse me, Union Square. Good for you. And it was an outpatient rehab. But I think for me and also for the people around me, you know, understanding addiction and understanding recovery are really two different things. And, you know, just because you realize your life is unmanageable and you can't keep a job and you should go to rehab is one thing, but truly understanding what you need to do to recover and to get sober and to stay sober is truly something else. So, you know, I drank when I was in rehab. I did drugs when I was in rehab. The people who told me that, you know, I should be in rehab were really thinking, Hey, you know, you're in rehab now. You should be able to drink with us like a normal person. That's really not how it works whatsoever. So um, it actually took, I moved to California, you know, that, horrible car accident that I talk about in the book. And it actually took two years, you know, after my first check into rehab to finally get sober. Um, and then I did that through Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I finally got sober, you know, after so many years of just ups and downs and, and moving across the country and moving from state to state and going through jobs, I just looked around and I took stock of my life. I saw where some of my friends were and they were, you know, buying houses and having kids and 
you know, I, I just really looked at my life and I said, do I want to keep doing this? You know, do I want to be unhealthy? Do I want to feel sick and tired? Do I want to feel sick every time I, you know, drink something or have a chest ache every time I smoke a cigarette? How much longer can I do this? And it was through meeting people who were in recovery, actually, that really inspired me to get sober myself. So that's why I'm very, very vocal about my sobriety, because that's how it helped me. But I had some friends, some, some chef friends who had recovered, and they were just normal people living their lives. I had a really, really good friend from college who inspired me to join AA. I really asked myself if I was done drinking and doing drugs for the rest of my life. And, you know, I, I looked in the mirror and I told myself, yes. Pretty much after that, I walked into my first meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was 12 years ago, and I've never looked back. So, congratulations! Wow, that's amazing, man. What a really fantastic truly. story! Amazing, <laughs> you. you're so right, though, because it's just especially back in those days when we were younger, you go to work when the sun's going down, you go to bed when the sun's coming up, and just it becomes a, a, like your vampire lifestyle. Yeah. Like, it's tough, it's a tough one to get out of. I love my job. I love working at George. I loved every second of it. They definitely didn't love every second of me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, and I stuck at it and I'm very, very grateful that, you know, through the haze of, you know, my drug use and my drinking, I was able to just keep learning. That's why I really believe this is, this industry was meant for me and this art was meant for me, but you work for 12 hours, you go in early, you know, no one asked us to work off the clock or anything, but we just felt the responsibility to, go in like two, three, sometimes four hours early on the weekends just to get set up and just get everything done because we had so much pride in what we we're doing. You want to be the best. And, you know, by the time you get off work, you know, it's maybe it's 11, maybe it's midnight. We just go out and it's New York City and like the bars are open until 4 a.m. You know, sometimes and, they never close. And, oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, then after that, you know, like by the time multiple people from multiple restaurants, we've all kind of gathered together and 4 a.m., you know, the group of responsible people, they go home and then the rest of us, we go back out, we, you know, by like 6 a.m., people just making really, really poor decisions at that hour. <laughs> I often think that it's really important to realize that you learn from your mistakes. So I don't want to regret any part of that because all those experiences made me the person who I am today. But I, I mishandled that part of my life for sure. And because you're so vocal about it, I think chefs like yourself being so vocal about this is... I mean, you're starting to kind of see a little shift in the industry, I think. You're starting to see more people who treat their work like an athletic event where they, they go and they train and they, get, they take care of themselves and they take care of their mental health and they're not out drinking all the time like 20 years ago or 25 years ago. I think there's definitely becoming a, a mainstream global change in the industry because of chefs talking more and more about that sort of thing openly. Yes, with the change in the generation mm -hmm. and the current workforce being characteristically, you know, very different than my generation. I think there have been a lot of conversations about all of this. And I would probably timestamp it to about like five or six years ago as we, we really started talking about mental health in the culinary industry. I think a lot of it started with Me Too and the reckoning that that took place in the restaurant industry. But yeah, I mean, the restaurant industry has so many issues and I think we're still working through a lot of it. And a lot of those issues came out last year as well right. with the pandemic and Black Lives Matter. And we're, I feel like we're still in the industry reckoning. But um, I think it's the Silver Chef kind of thing started popping up about five, six years ago. And people were talking about just addiction and recovery in the restaurant industry. And, you know, 100%, the restaurant industry has 100% the highest rates of addiction in any other mm -hmm. career profession. It's the hours, it's the lifestyle, it's getting off work at night, it's being rewarded for finishing your job with alcohol. 
maybe even drugs sometimes. So it's, it's kind of really changing that culture. And currently today, I'm in a recovery group called Ben's Friends, which is specifically a recovery group for people in the restaurant industry. So it's a very, very safe space for chefs and bartenders and winemakers to talk about their issues with addiction, their joys of recovery in a space with people who understand, you know? So if you walk into an AA meeting and you're like, I'm a bartender, but I'm a recovery, it might be a little confusing to the majority of the group there, but at Invent's Friends, we understand that we're in this profession. It's what we love. It's what we want to do. And, and we want to make it work with our recovery as well. So, yeah, you know, I think it's really important that we keep having these discussions. I think, you know, a lot of chefs, have been criticized for toxic behavior because of the people that they became working in some tougher kitchens, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. I had a tremendous experience. You know, I was never abused in my kitchens. You know, there was a fantastic person. He ran great kitchens, but that's not the case for a lot of people. I know cooks who've been mentally and physically abused by their chefs and all that definitely has to stop. So yeah, it's a tough industry. And I think we're moving towards a better place and so even today, as we, we talk about what we need to move forward and we talk about Black Lives Matter and equity and fairness for all, these are conversations that we're still having and, and industry workers are still asking for fair demands in restaurants. And I want to do my part as well to make sure that my teams feel safe. Gregory, you mentioned a very important word, reckoning, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think has become, you know, sort of the symbol not just in the uh, restaurant industry, but I think overall, as a result of this pandemic, everyone has sort of turned in and looked at where there are flaws in systems writ large, writ small, in the restaurant industry in particular. And I know that in lots of large cities, you know, there have been people who have come forth and said, you know, I was sexually harassed or I was treated, you know, unfairly. And I'm certainly not the judge or the jury, but I know that you have a particular stance with that and that you have interacted with people that you've come across, because uh, your word's not mine, you would never want to see anyone feel any any sort of slight, because you have this history as a black man, as an immigrant, someone who has battled demons. So where do you see that reckoning evolving into something different, mm-hmm. uh, specifically with the restaurant industry? Because, yeah. you know, I'm restaurant adjacent, you know, chef is a chef, and I'm a journalist, but I've watched the whole thing unfold as well. Sure. Even for me, you know, I've had teammates that have expressed last year that they felt they were treated fairly in the kitchens that I ran. It was a very, very tough time for me because, well, I think generally a lot of it came out as anonymous accusations. And, you know, I think people just needed a platform and it was a moment in time and people were angry and to be a part of Black Lives Matter, to watch George Floyd getting murdered. You know, I think there was a, a very tense moment coupled with like police brutality in this country. So it was a very tense moment in American history. And for me, you know, I truly feel that conversation is really the most important piece of this and real open, honest person to person communication is really the biggest piece of this. And yeah, you know, if I have been a part of a system that made people feel uncomfortable, I, I don't want to be a part of that system, you know, and I want to do everything that I can to fix that, you know, because I don't have a traumatic restaurant experience, you know, like, I was always very welcome into my kitchens. I was always taught to work very, very hard. I have a very strong work ethic for my parents. And I understand that like, I'm a little different. What I needed to work on is just really making sure that every single person in my kitchen felt safe. And then I've worked in some really, really big kitchens. I've had teams of 30 people. And I think the whole experience 
has helped me understand that I need to do my part to be better at making sure that everyone has a platform, everyone has a voice. I feel what I learned the most last year is that I literally have everything that I ever wanted. And I think being in recovery is really something that helps me understand that, you know, I've really been through the worst times of my life and I really don't imagine it can get any worse. So it's really important to me that I share all my resources with my teams. And, you know, I was able to do a pop-up last winter uh, at the height of the pandemic, you know, and it was a really good experiment. And we were able to employ, you know, staffs of women X and women and BIPOC. And, you know, our team at the end was 90% women X and 90% POC. Was that by design? It was 100% by design. You know, it was 100% by design. And, you know, my three managers were women. Yes, they were 100% the best persons for the position. And yes, I've worked with a lot of fantastic people um, and I want them to keep being part of my team. It was very loud and clear that, you know, a lot of women in the industry feel that they've been mistreated and I want to do my part to help change that story. And, you know, as a Black person who has made his way through this industry, I want to be able to be an example of, you know, for all BIPOC that, yes, we live in a very challenging time. And yes, there's a lot of risk with just being alive today. But, you know, if you can align yourself with the right person, you can achieve success. And I want to be the person that people cling on to. And, you know, we all achieve success together. I love that. And I I personally want to thank you for doing that, because as a Latina, I try to do the same thing with people in broadcast journalism. We're heading into a break. But before we do, Gregory mentioned the recovery support group, Ben's Friends. If you work in the food and beverage industry and you're interested in sobriety, Ben's Friends holds nationwide meetings daily over Zoom. Find out more at the website bensfriendshope.com. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Marisol Castro. We'll continue our conversation with Gregory Gorday and dig into some recipes from his book in just a few minutes. But first, you're going to hear from our producers, Robin Doyan-Aiken and Katie Talarski, about how you can support Seasoned. When you pledge your support during this hour, you're letting us know that you value conversations with chefs and cookbook authors like the one you're hearing right now. And we do know many of you do value conversations like these. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken with Katie Talarski. We produce Seasoned, and I'm thinking about the woman who called in during our end-of-the-month live show and told Plum she looks forward to Thursdays at 3. If you are a person who looks forward to Seasoned every week, I hope you'll take the next step right now and support it. WNPR.org slash donate is the website to go to or dial 1-800-584-2788. We are working hard to bring you conversations about food that truly run the gamut. Recently, we brought you the voices of honeymakers and teenage beekeepers. We previewed the summer farmer's market season, and we had a firecracker of a guest on our most recent live show about grilling. And today, you're hearing all about Chef Gregory Gorday's journey to wellness. It costs money to bring these voices to your cars and earbuds, so please make a gift of whatever amount works for you right now. That's right, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. Robin, I love being here with you always, but um, during these pledge drives, we get to get together and talk about um, how much fun we have putting this show together. And um, again, I always love 
watching Robin go through the process of um, booking guests and finding guests and just the whole magic that's behind the scenes of putting together a great radio show. And this is another great episode that we're listening to. I love it when we can have these longer sit-down interviews with some of these more well-known um, chefs. And uh, for some of us, we're meeting these chefs for the first time, but they're fascinating people and we get to learn some of their stories and also their cooking tips and tricks and all that. So again, if you are a uh, listener of Connecticut Public Radio, if you're a fan of Seasoned, our new food show, we're asking you to support it. Again, if you call during this hour, it helps us know that you support this specific program, which is great. We also have a bigger incentive if we make our $75,000 goal um, for this week. If we reach that goal early, then we can end the fun drive early, Robin. That is exciting news, mostly because we know when we ask our listeners to step forward that they do that and they they help us to keep these shows on the air. And and again, it never hurts if we can end the fun drive early. So help us do that now, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. Katie, I also love witnessing your radio magic, and you can donate by visiting wnpr.org slash donate or by calling 1-800-584-2788. Giving online is simple and secure, and you can pick out a gift for yourself or someone else while you're there. Seasoned listeners might be especially interested to know that through our special partnership with the Village for Families and Children, when you make a pledge of $15 a month, you can help feed a child for a week through the Village's after-school program. The Village serves children in Hartford, Middletown, Manchester, and Meriden. Maybe you're a coffee or beer drinker. When you go to wnpr.org slash donate, you can see mugs with your favorite shows on them and pint glasses so you can toast to your generosity. wnpr.org slash donate is the website to go to or dial 1-800-584-2788 and let us know that you want to support Seasoned and everything you hear on Connecticut Public Radio. That's right. We have so many thank you items at wnpr.org slash donate. You can see them all. Um, lots of mugs and all sort of, I, mean, I think there's some socks that we're, we're um, featuring again and lots of ways for us to thank you for your pledge of support here at Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, this is our June membership campaign. We wouldn't be here without your support. This is listener supported radio. So we're so appreciative of all of you who are members, all of you who have stepped forward to become part of this community to help bring Seasoned to you day after day. But if you have not yet, please do it now. Please call us 1-800-584-2788. Support Robin and Chef Plum and Marisol Castro and all the folks who who make this possible. Again, the number 1-800-584-2788. The website wnpr.org slash donate. Uh, Do it now. It's fast. It's easy. It's secure. 1-800-584-2788. And thanks so much. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're spending the hour with Chef Gregory Gourdet. We've talked so far about his early years cooking in New York, his wellness journey, and how he wants to see kitchens become safe spaces for everyone to work. Now let's get into the cookbook, Everyone's Table. I really wanted to write a book that even if you'd never seen me on TV, if if you've never been to my restaurants, you could pick up the book and it would be helpful. And it was less about me and like what I cook and fancy chefy stuff and I really want it to be really useful for me eating is such a big part of my health story and you know when I did get sober 
I was crazy about fitness. I joined the CrossFit gym. I became an ultra runner. I just kept doing marathons, like multiple marathons a year. And I started experimenting with the paleo diet. So I actually went off gluten and dairy. Um, and those are the two biggest sticking points uh, or, or, you know, the, the two biggest parts of me. You know, I, I do consider myself somewhat paleo. I, I love the paleo diet, but the book itself is gluten-free. It's dairy-free. It's refined sugar-free and soy uh, legume and grain-free. But at the same time, it's it's not a book for only people on those diets. I like to call them dietary distinctions. Even if you just want to get a healthy dinner on the table, or if you're happen to be entertaining someone who's vegan or gluten-free, you can use the book. Or even if you just want to do a huge overhaul and just incorporate more global flavors into your dishes at home, the book is for you. So, I mean, the book's many parts are A, it's based off the top 100 superfoods. B, it's 100% allergen-friendly. C, incorporates a global pantry of ingredients. So how to use all the different types of chilies, how to use fish sauce, how to use coconut milk, how to make creamy sauces with cashews, how to ferment. And then the last piece is really, uh, it's designed for home cooks. It's a really step-by-step process because I want everyone to be successful in recreating the recipes. Just so you know, you can stash this away in your in your mental Rolodex. Your your book, your cookbook was on my kitchen table. And at one point, my 84-year-old Puerto Rican mother opens it. And it sounds better in Spanish, but she said, you know, oh, the Haitians are just like us. They cook with plantains. They cook with indigenous food that's suddenly hip. She left. My, tri- my triathlon neuroscientist, half Italian, half Polish partner, looked at it and said, you need to make this paleo flour. He uses three different flours and you should do that. And then my my 15-year-old, you know, lacrosse player was like, I like dried apricot balls, like these energy balls. Can you make those for me? That would make a good snack. That covers the tapestry of Connecticut and America. <laughs> so if no one tells you your cookbook is reaching the masses, I just did. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't get to place my order with what I want you to make mine all. So just let me know when it's my turn <laughs> to place my order. <laughs> I'm just going to give you the book and you can make every recipe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, chef, I think one of the things that I love the most about this is that it's important to know the origins of ingredients and dishes. And that's a big thing with you, too. You think it's such an important thing to understand where these things come from, why we're using them, and the history behind them. Yes. For me, understanding the culture behind the cuisine is extremely important. And this is another element, another layer of cooking that is so fascinating to me. Uh, you know, and having been someone who's worked in all these different styles of restaurants and has been working with all these different types of ingredients and I've learned all about these different types of cuisines. And, you know, I've been to Asia numerous times and I've been to Europe numerous times and I'm going back to Haiti now as much as possible connecting with how these ingredients kind of made their way across the world, you know, the origins of how they came to be these iconic dishes that we think of. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And you know, one of my favorite examples is, you know, oftentimes when you talk about jerk and there's a jerk inspired recipe in the book, you know, why is there often sometimes ginger and soy sauce and jerk? And that's because of the Chinese immigrants, you know, that moved to Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And this type of story, you know, is very common. And we see it in so many of the foods and some of the iconic dishes, you know, it's kind of like a couple of ingredients. You're like, well, how did this make it this way to this specific dish, this specific country? So the book goes into that. Um, it goes into a lot of the story behind a lot of the Haitian cuisines and just that kind of game of telephone, that game of transportation. And, you know, the reality of it is a lot of it has a bit of a dark past, you know, 
slavery, indentured servitude, colonialism, all these things kind of created so many of the flavors that we consider iconic to a specific place. So I think it's important that we know the history of these foods, the good and the bad. Everywhere, even foods like from down south, from where I'm from, to New England foods, to I mean, all over. Every food, every dish has a story to it. And when you start diving deep into them, some pretty cool information there. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And I thought that I felt that was really important to when we talk about having a global pantry, just to be respectful and to be, you know, honest with these ingredients. I think it's important to know the stories behind them and getting that connection to the people. You know, I think that's important too. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's a great piece that it connects you with the story behind the people as well. Can you share some recipes from the Haitian heritage part of the book? Oh, sure. Um, I'm thinking of your. Your mom's Haitian meatloaf. Uh, mom's Haitian meatloaf. Yeah, that was that was one of those dishes. Like, oh, mom, like I'm like thinking of this like recipe. I'm like, mom, well, like, what'd you use to put in the meatloaf? <laughs> and I just remember like the olives and the peppers, like in the studying. Really? Um. So yeah, I mean, like, mom used to make like meatloaf, and it, it'd be studded with olives and peppers, the pimento stuff olives, like you know, <laughs> and uh, you know. So what my, my take on the book, and this is like just kind of like very cinematic of the book. You know, I've I've lined up with turkey and i glaze it with ketchup because you know who doesn't love ketchup glazed meatloaf which was mm-hmm. you know not very haitian but um, delicious <laughs> <laughs> yeah another really good example of you know some of the things that we're doing is uh the haitian spice pineapple upside down cake you know and pineapple upside down cake is a very very iconic haitian dessert it's spiced with cinnamon and star anise and lime zest and almond extract and vanilla extract and it's like a very beautiful fragrant cake and and the version in the book, you know, I introduce, uh, you know, a gluten-free flour blend um, that's made from almond flour, coconut flour, and tapioca starch. I personally think the cake crumb is absolutely wonderful. A lot of people don't even realize the cake is gluten-free when, when they have it because I've made this cake in restaurants before. And I've taken out the butter and the oil and I've replaced it with coconut oil. And I replaced the sugars with, you know, maple syrup and coconut sugar. So kind of like switching out a few ingredients just to make these dishes a little bit lighter, a little bit healthier. But at the same time, there's also recipes that are just one turn straightforward. You know, there's fried plantains, um, and, um, you know, the same kind of crispy fried plantain that are in many kind of Latinx countries. And tostones. All- yeah, exactly. Oh, by the way, are you team tostones or team maduro? <laughs> I'm... Uh... Honestly, like, I love both, but, like, I have a huge sweet tooth, so I'm Team Maduro. I'm Team Tostones. For those of you wondering, it's the salty fried yeah. green plantains yeah, or yeah. the sweeter, uh, smoother Maduros, which are a sweet But there, there's recipes for both in the book. You there's know what, whole... Gregory? It was going so well. <laughs> uh. there's, a whole, there's a whole plantain chart. So my commitment to the plantain is very honest and real. Yeah, good. <laughs> Hey, I want to talk about this raw butternut squash salad with chilies and pomegranate and lots of seeds. You know, I like to take a little butternut squash or or even a zucchini and just, you know, I'll shred it really small and put it into a salad. But trying to convince people to eat butternut squash raw sometimes isn't the easiest thing in the world to do. No, it's not. And, you know, there's a lot of chopping in that salad, but I think it's a just a really, really fun way. I mean, how many times can you like roast butternut squash or, you know, make it into soup? So, you know, I think... Part of the book and the feedback I've been getting from really avid home cooks is that the book does push you. You know, there's definitely some really straightforward, simple ingredients. Um, there's a couple of recipes that encourage you to, you know, pre-make a sauce 
but you can keep that sauce in the fridge. You can make extra and, you know, you can pull that sauce out for other things. But there's a couple of recipes that, you know, you might thinking, hey, this is like a little bit different. Um, but I, I guarantee you, you know, I take you through the steps in a very patient and thoughtful way. And I guarantee you the, the recipes work. They've been tested and tried. Um, and I guarantee you, you know, once you kind of get a couple of these new styles of cooking down, you'll be able to recreate these dishes for your family time and time again. I'm so okay with having a few extra steps in a recipe. I think it's important to get back to actually cooking food. Use your hands. Yeah. You know, spend some time. Use some love when you make it. It doesn't have to always be pasta with some crazy sauce. Just cook a little bit more. It's good for you people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I had butternut, raw butternut squash, and I was like, well, this is so interesting. It's crispy, it's crunchy, and a fresh way to create a fall salad. I'm telling you, I am going to put butternut squash in a salad today when I go to work. That's Doing happening. it. What do you cook on a random Wednesday night? I'm always fascinated by what professional chefs eat or cook for themselves. I'm very, very simple, honestly. And I eat a lot of birds and fish, really. So I'll roast chicken thighs with like mushroom powder. Or I love roasting a whole chicken. There's a whole spatchcock chicken in the book over a bed of vegetables. And maybe I'll, you know, either slow bake or roast crispy with the skin on a large piece of salmon. And I always have like a funky sauce or a hot sauce or chili oil in my pantry or in my fridge. One of my favorite sauces is a chili lime sauce that's in the book. And it's like fish sauce and lime juice and garlic and chilies. And you can keep that in your fridge for months. And it has heat. It has salt. It has funkiness. It has spice, and it's really perfect on almost anything. So, I actually made that on Sunday and threw it over some oh, chicken. Nice. It was awesome. It's, I can co-sign. <laughs> it's yummy. It's really good. Okay, good. You know, it did take me three years to write the book, so I'm extremely proud of it. And uh, I just hope the book brings people joy, and I hope my story inspires people to kind of destigmatize addiction and kind of be a voice for people kind of struggling and offer support and resources and always know that there's a way out. You're a legend, Chef. We appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've had so much fun today. That was Gregory Gourday. His new book is Everyone's Table. We've got the recipe for that Haitian pineapple upside-down cake on our site. Go to ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanakin and Katie Tolarski. Marisol and I hope you'll stick around for just a few more minutes so Robin and Katie can tell you how you can support Seasoned and all the local shows you hear on Connecticut Public Radio. Visit WNPR.org slash donate and become a sustaining member at 5 or 10 or $15 a month or whatever amount works for you. Uh, this is Robin Doyon Aiken. I'm with Katie Talarski. We are jumping back in to ask for your support. You can also call 1-800-584-2788 and make your pledge of support that way. We have a summer of fun shows planned, and we can't wait to share more stories with you about Connecticut's farmers and restaurants bakeries and coffee shops and breweries and distilleries, but we need your help to tell stories and feature all the passionate people growing and cooking our food. Call us at 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. One thing that I love about Seasoned and, and helping Robin produce Season over uh, the past year is that it provides some really well-needed 
balance to my news intake. Uh, you know, we have a lot of important um, hard news, important political conversations, all of those conversations we have to have. But we also need a break from that sometimes. And we need to meet interesting people, to meet the people in our community, Robin, as you said, who are who are our farmers, who are growing our food that we eat at the farmer's market or uh, managing or running the restaurants uh, that we go to. That's what we do here on Seasoned. I love that community focus. I love that it's, you know, it's very much a local show. It's very much, you know, we talk to some national people, but it's very much rooted in Connecticut and the people and places here. And that is uh, so refreshing to my ears to hear and to just enjoy every single week. So if that's a reason that you appreciate this programming, we're asking you uh, to step forward and support it during this June membership campaign, uh, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate is the number and the website, whatever is easiest for you to uh, join this community of folks who help bring you the programming on Connecticut Public Radio. Do it now. Call us 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org slash donate. Maybe you're back to your daily commute and Connecticut Public Radio is a part of your drive again. Welcome back. If you missed us, let us know with your pledge of support. Maybe you're thinking back to all of the station's excellent coverage during the height of the pandemic. Or maybe, like Katie was saying, you appreciate Seasoned for distracting you with conversations about chocolate or pizza or tea or vegan cheese. Let us know. Call 1-800-584-2788 or go to wnpr.org slash donate right now. When you do, you are saying, I want to hear more from food makers and farmers around our state. Visit wnpr.org slash donate or call 1-800-584-2788 to pledge your support for conversations like the ones we have with local food makers, cookbook authors, and nationally known chefs like Gregory Gorday. And thank you so much.